As we prepare for today's scripture, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Gracious God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but yours, so we may hear your word and faithfully do your will. So today's scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The word of the Lord. You may have noticed on your way in today that there are two buildings, I can see them through the window here, that are slowly disappearing across Charter Street. Uh, they're being demolished to make way for the new School of uh, Computer Data and Information Sciences. And uh, I've been fascinated by how these buildings have been coming down. And every time in my, uh, I come into the office, I can't help but stand outside uh, and, and watch the, the work uh, uh, commence uh, for a few minutes. Uh, they're not just taking a wrecking ball to those buildings, uh, if you've had a chance to, to see it at all. They're carefully deconstructing them uh, piece by piece. And the, the main machine that they're using to do this has this long extension arm uh, with a giant metal claw at the end. And uh, beginning at the roof, and then slowly moving down, uh, the operator of that machine is tearing each piece of the building away and then setting it to the side. And they pile it all up and then cart it away. 
Uh, this machine has tremendous power uh, to, to, to tear away at the, at the brick and the metal, uh, all the parts of that building. Uh, and so it's tremendously powerful, but it also is capable of such care that I don't believe any pieces have ended up in traffic on University Avenue yet. But they're almost done. So I think they're, they're probably safe. Our theme today is gentleness. And as I thought about it, it's this demolition machine that came to my mind. It's both enormously powerful and under perfect control of the operator. And this is what we will see about gentleness today. Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is strength under control. This fall, we've been studying the fruit of the Spirit, and I'm very grateful for how Nate Hale and, and Jeff Harden have contributed to this series, and we're, we're getting near to the end. But one of the things that we've seen throughout this series is that the fruit of the Spirit is like a crystal or, or a diamond cut with many different facets. And you can turn this crystal this way and that to examine each facet, as we've been doing, love or or patience, or goodness. But each of those facets leads to the same single reality of the Spirit, which is the Spirit of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of Christ. And in the Christian life, we're being invited into that Spirit's life to put away old ways of being, our sinful nature, our flesh, and put on a new way of being that looks like Jesus. Christians don't do this to earn God's love, but to demonstrate God's love to others. As C.S. Lewis said, and I've quoted before, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. And we're called to love others as we have been loved. So the form of love that we're considering today is gentleness. Paul uses the word only once in our text today, in verse 25, but we're going to see how gentleness is important to everything that Paul says. And let's consider three things. First, why gentleness is necessary. Sometimes we view gentleness as a personality trait that belongs to some people but not to others. You know, we say uh, someone has a gentle spirit. You know, that may be true, uh, but this is not how the New Testament uses the word. A gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit, a character trait that is for everyone. So we need to see why it's necessary. Second, why gentleness is so hard. It kind of sounds to me like something that should be easy, but it's actually one of the hardest virtues to attain. Finally, why gentleness is powerful. There, there's a paradox that we have to face about gentleness. It seems like it might be weak, but it's actually strong and powerful, like the demolition machine across the street. Gentleness is strength under control. So, why it's necessary, why it's so hard, and why it's so powerful. Now, let's begin with why gentleness is necessary. There are two Greek words that we translate as gentleness in the Bible. Proutes, uh, gentleness, or praus, which just means gentle. And these words are sometimes translated as gentleness, but other times as humility or the older word meekness. 
Blessed are the meek, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus turns upside down our expectations about power and authority. The meek and the humble and the gentle are not those we normally think about as rulers of kingdoms or leaders of companies or presidents of universities. But that's what Jesus says will happen in his kingdom. The meek will inherit the earth. They will rule the world. Over and over again in the New Testament, we find the churches being urged to display this meekness or gentleness. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul tells the believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. In Colossians 3.12, he says to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The focus in our passage today from 2 Timothy is especially on church leaders as models for the whole church. Here, Paul is providing guidance to his protege, Timothy, about how he should respond in a very challenging context where others are teaching something contrary to the apostolic gospel. Paul tells Timothy that he must have the courage to confront things that are wrong but that he also must do it with a certain kind of character. He tells him to correct his opponents with gentleness. And we see the combination of two things here that are often separated. On the one hand, Paul is not afraid to speak the truth about things that are wrong, and even speak specifically about problem people like Hymenaeus and Philetus. On the other hand, Paul makes clear that Timothy shouldn't be drawn into a fight that will only get him covered in mud. Even in the face of error, he also must display the character of Jesus. We often do one or the other of these things, but rarely do you find that both go together. Strongly confronting something that is wrong but controlling ourselves in the process. I would say that Paul calls Timothy to both in orthodoxy and in orthopraxy. Let me explain what I mean. We see the call to orthodoxy in verse 15, where Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, The words translated there as rightly handling is is one word in Greek. Uh, The word is orthotomeo. And you can hear an echo there of our word orthodoxy, orthotomeo, orthodoxy, which means right teaching. And this fits with what Paul says elsewhere, that Timothy should hold on to the gospel that he learned from Paul and not allow these false teachers to confuse the church. And it wasn't a small thing that these men were confused about. It was about the resurrection of Jesus, right? This goes to the the heart of the Christian's hope for the future. And so Timothy had to respond with clarity and with conviction 
about the truth. There was a need for orthodoxy. At the same time, Timothy had to have an orthopraxy. Not just a right doctrine, but a right practice. Showing Christ-like character even in the face of opposition. If you've been watching the same political ads and, and political debates that I have been over the past several weeks, I don't need to say very much about how badly our culture is in need of orthopraxy. Notice all the different things that Paul warns Timothy about in our text. Paul tells him not to quarrel about words, to avoid irreverent babble, to watch out for talk that spreads like gangrene, and to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Notice how all of those involve our words and our speech. These dangers still exist for us today. Take any important issue in the church or in our culture, and you can be totally right in your opinion on it and totally wrong in how you talk about it and how you treat people who disagree with you. In verse 14, Paul goes so far as to say that this quarreling about words can ruin a person. The words that you speak and the impact that they have on others have lasting effects, not just on them, but on you and what those words do to your character and your heart. In his book, The Road to Character, the New York Times columnist David Brooks makes a distinction between what he calls the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The, the resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, your job market skills, the things that contribute to your external success in life. And these have their place. It's good to have a, a great resume. But what are the eulogy virtues? These are the things that will be talked about at your funeral. What kind of person you were. Whether you were kind, or brave, or honest, or faithful, or gentle. What kinds of relationships you formed. Here's the thing. You can be very smart and build a great resume. You can be very successful even. But the fruit of the Spirit, the kind of gentleness we're talking about today, is not a resume virtue. It's a eulogy virtue. And that's why it's necessary. So if gentleness is necessary, why is it so hard? The theologian Christopher Wright compares gen gentleness with patience. He says patience is the ability to endure hostility and criticism without anger, while gentleness is the ability to endure such things without aggression. Gentleness is about how you respond to others, especially when they have a different point of view than yourself, which is pretty much everyone. If you're gentle, you're not harsh or inflexible or vindictive. As we've already seen, this does not mean that you don't have strong opinions. 
Paul goes so far at the end of our passage today to say that Timothy's opponents have been captured by the devil. That's a strong view. But even so, he says, be kind to everyone. Patiently endure evil. Correct your opponents with gentleness. So someone who is gentle has convictions. They have a commitment to the truth as they see it. But they are also able to manage their emotions and stay connected to others. When you lose touch with the virtue of gentleness, like in our toxic media culture, when someone disagrees with you, it's all too easy to push back by belittling, demeaning, or attacking them. It's not just in our culture, though. This can happen in the church, too, in lots of ways, but especially in churches that place a high value on doctrinal orthodoxy, like our own tradition. It's possible to be highly orthodox in your doctrine and fail in your orthopraxy. In the Reformed tradition, we place a high value on our confessional statements, on doctrinal precision, but too often these things have gone along with a failure to grow in our emotional maturity. We're like a weightlifter who only exercises one side of his body. Super strong in one way, but very weak in another. And for those of you in the university, the same is often true in that context, isn't it? In the university, you are usually rewarded not for your character, but for your gifts, for your scholarship, for your research. Quarreling about words is sometimes your job. And people often don't care how you do it as long as you get the publications on your CV or get the grant. These challenges show us why gentleness is so hard. Gentleness requires us to prioritize people and relationships even over our own projects and agendas. We're all capable of taking something good and making it an, an idol, making it ultimate, so that we feel justified even when we pursue our goal in the wrong way. When we're not gentle, we view other people as the problem. They are the obstacles for getting what we want. But when we see our idolatry for what it is and how it leads us to mistreat others, we begin to realize that we can be the biggest problem of all. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. I'm glad a couple of you get that. When you can say that, I think I'm the problem here, without just being ironic or self-deprecating, it results in a spirit of humility in all your interactions with others. You will come to conversations aware of your own blind spots and your weaknesses. You'll be able to listen without immediately being defensive and you'll be able to speak with gentleness. In verse 19, 
Paul gives Timothy two truths to rely on, even in the face of his conflicts with these heretical teachers. Uh, Though those teachers are upsetting the faith of some people, and this is likely a major crisis in Timothy's church, Paul tells him, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The picture here is the foundation of a building with a plaque on it. And on the plaque, it says two things. First, the Lord knows those who who are his. In other words, Timothy, don't be troubled by these false teachers. God is in control. He knows his people. The, The ministry does not rely all on you as the pastor. This is good news. Second, the plaque says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, you can't control what the false teachers are doing, but there is something that you can do. You can take responsibility for yourself, for your actions, for your response, and you can encourage others to do the same thing, to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, no matter what the circumstances, trust in God, do what is right, and leave the results to him. Do you see how gentleness requires such a deep faith? In God's kingdom, the ends never justify the means. For Jesus, the way you live the gospel is as important as what you believe about the gospel. They can't be separated. Martin Luther said, it's impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. So we have a lot to learn to grow in these ways. But the Spirit is at work. I've mentioned before that on our church council, we've been talking about some of these themes related to our denomination's proposed code of conduct for church leaders. It's an important conversation, and I'm really proud of how our leaders are engaging in this work. And we've also started reading together a helpful book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Pete Scazzaro. Some of you may know his work. The goal here is to help us grow in our self-awareness, to grow in the virtue of gentleness, and to elevate the kinds of qualities that Paul urged church leaders to pursue. One thing that Pete Scazzaro says that has really stood out to to several of us is that so often we want to do great things for God. But we haven't cultivated the kind of being with God that can sustain our doing. We live from our gifts rather than from our character. So friends, if we're going to be a church that is experiencing the work of of God's Spirit, not just for ourselves, but for our whole city and for our new neighborhood that uh, we're moving into and all the changes that are coming uh, next year, then we must nurture a life with God that can sustain our ministry. It's hard, but it's not optional. So we've seen why gentleness is necessary and why it's hard. 
And finally, let's consider why gentleness is so powerful. In verses 20 and 21, Paul uses the metaphor of different kinds of vessels in a home. Gold and silver, wooden clay. And some of these vessels are the fine dishes that you bring out for company. Some of these vessels are the trash cans. And he says in verse 21, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. He's saying that as you pursue a life of integrity in your relationships with others, God has a purpose for you. You will be useful to him. This is what we see again in verses 24 and 25, where he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, his opponents with gentleness, it's about the kind of character that we've talked about. But then notice what comes next. In verse 25, here's the purpose of this character. God may perhaps grant them, the opponents, repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see what he's saying? They aim of ministry is always to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, to be used by God for the salvation, healing, and restoration of others. No matter how far they have fallen short or how mistaken they are in their thinking, God is aimed at their redemption. And your gentle strength can bring someone back from enemy territory. We see this most of all in the person and work of Jesus. In the opening chapter of his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, the author, Dane Ortland points out something very insightful about what Jesus says about himself in the Gospels. In the four Gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. The Gospels tell us all sorts of things about Jesus' teaching, his birth, his life, his travels, his ministry. But there is only one place where Jesus talks about his heart. And the heart, in Jewish thinking, was about the core of a person's character and their identity. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Orland says, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. In his earthly ministry, Jesus knew what it was like to have enemies. 
He knew what it was like to be misunderstood, even by his family. He knew disagreement and conflict. And we never see him respond with cowardice or retaliation. Instead, he always spoke the truth and gave himself for the sake of others. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery summarizes the meaning of gentleness in the Bible in this way. Gentleness is an image of God's ultimate subversive power that undercuts the power structures of this world. Gentleness is an image of God's ultimate subversive power that undercuts the power structures of this world. How does it do this? By showing what real power and strength look like. The power of gentleness doesn't come from us. It comes from him. When you respond to others with gentleness, you become a part of this movement of the Spirit's subversive power. This is the fruit of the Spirit and a sign that you've been united to Jesus. We will fall short, but we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on in this work. And in this race, Jesus is always ready to receive us. In Matthew 11, he tells us to whom he is always ready to show gentleness and acceptance. Do you remember what he says? He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So friends, are you laboring? Are you heavy laden? Do you need gentleness? Then come to him, and he will give you rest. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your gentleness to us that doesn't leave us as we are, but changes us more and more into the image of Christ. Uh, we pray for the ongoing work of your spirit in our lives, in our church, in our whole community. You know our weakness and our failure. We entrust ourselves to you. We confess our complete dependence on you. May we be the people that you call us to be, people who love as you love, who give as you give, and who serve as you serve. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.